Good morning, church. So we're going to look at God's word. If you'd follow along, I'm going to read John 18, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So before we're done, uh, we're going to read from other parts of this larger passage in John 18 and 19. We'll get there momentarily, but... um, Some of you might be familiar. There's a song that's been sung in Christian circles for many, many decades. Nobody knows actually when exactly it was written. Nobody knows who even wrote it. But it's a simple song. It's been uh, been included in 28 different hymnals. It's been translated into multiple languages around the world. Because of its simplicity, it's easily transferable to other cultures and other languages. And you might know it if you're familiar with it. It just goes like this. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And you might have been singing it where you're at right now. If you're familiar with it, maybe you grew up singing that song. It's familiar, simple. It's not a complicated theology. It's very um, bottom shelf accessible truth. Here's the thing, though. Um, Here's the challenge. Singing those words, God is so good, he's so good to me, is not difficult when our circumstances are going well. On the other hand, singing those words, singing God is so good, when the employment, unemployment line grew by, what was it, 6.6 million people just this past week, that's a lot more challenging to do, to sing that song in the unemployment line, to sing that song while isolated in quarantine, while isolated from life, the life-giving presence of friends or family members around you, right? Trials, uh, they have a way of interrupting the song, God is so good, and they, they get in our ears and they get in our heads and they say, is that true though? Is God really good? The presence of trials can create this inside friction, this inside question. Next thing you know, your faith is being shaken in Christ. The uncertainty of things like jobs and and health and finances begins to drift into another form of uncertainty. Uncertainty about God, uncertainty about who he is, uncertainty about his promises, his purposes, his character. And and what happens after that? Well, that's how Satan robs the believer 
of peace. That's a very real situation that's facing a lot of us in these days as we walk through this challenge together. Enter the historical account, John's eyewitness historical account of the passion of the Christ. Everything from in John 18 and John 19, everything from Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane to his arrest, all the way leading up to it is finished, all of that is intended by God to give you, Christian, a rock-solid answer to the question, how do you know God is good? It's one thing to sing it. How do you know? On what does that conviction rest? John 18, 19, I hope we're going to pick this up. John 18, 19 wants to give you your song back. It wants to give you this indestructible melody, this indestructible truth that even in trials, you are convinced in the deepest places in your soul God is so good. He is so good to me personally, even in the midst of this. John 18 and 19, it locates the deepest problem in the world. And Jesus cures the problem by bearing the problem in our place. That is what the cross signifies. Jesus inhales the deepest problem of the world for God's glory and for our eternal good, which is another way of just saying That's a long way around of just saying, what I've got for us this morning is a gospel. What I've got for us this morning is good news, hope through Jesus Christ. So three reminders for us. The first is this. Jesus died alone that he might give us family. How do you know God is good? You know it because of this truth. Jesus died alone that he might give us family. You know, John John's gospel slows way down, as do all the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John's gospel slows way down when you get to chapter 13. We've been in these chapters for the last few weeks. John 1 through 12 covers the whole three, three, three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. John 13 through 17 is just one meal with 12 guys. So you have slowed down. I mean, in, in John 1 through chapters 1 through 12, it, it marks time with a calendar. John 13 through 17, there's a clock on the wall in the upper room and you can hear the second hand going by. There are transcripts of the things that were said in that one meal with those disciples. But to the point of the isolation is Jesus is increasingly isolated as you move through John's gospel. His public ministry, all the massive crowds are gone by the time you get to the upper room. It's just Jesus and 12. And then when you get, you read through John 13, you get to John 14, Judas is gone. So now we're down to 11. And then those 11 friends are about to leave. If you look down in verse 8 of John 18, and the 11 friends that are with Jesus are about to leave as well. Verse 8, Jesus says, if you're looking for me, Let these men go. He's standing between those who would arrest him and his disciples. He puts himself in that place. Let them go. You want me. You came here for me. Let them go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. It was a protective move on the part of Jesus so that none would be lost. He says, you're here for me. Let them go. And 
if you read Mark's gospel, so the, the different gospel accounts, the beautiful thing about having four gospels is they complement one another. So you, when you put all of the accounts together, you can see more of the details of what took place. Mark's gospel tells us what happened right then and there. Mark 14, 46 through 50, it says this. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Verse 50, then they all deserted him and ran away. So there go the last 11 close friends of Jesus and he is all by himself. This is in your notes for us to remember. The very move that protects his disciples leaves Jesus friendless in his final hour. When Jesus steps forward and says, you came here for me, just deal with me and let these guys go. That moment was protective for them and it put Jesus in the position of total isolation. You know, there's a, a tragic story that's been repeated on the news. One of the hardest things that I imagine you and I have been seeing as we've been watching the updates uh, related to COVID-19 and what's going on out there is uh, people aren't just dying. That, that's always happening in a fallen world, unfortunately. But people are dying in quarantine. People are dying in a room by themselves, looking at a loved one on a screen or hearing their voice on a phone. They're dying in isolation. Jesus gets it. Jesus entered into this broken, fallen world and he tasted even our isolation. He tasted it in a whole new, at a whole new level. If you keep tracking with the story and you flip over to John 19, if you got that Bible, just go ahead and flip over the next page to John 19 and look at verse 17. Those first five words, carrying the cross by himself he went out to what is called the place of the skull. Carrying the cross by himself, Jesus died alone. He died isolated. He didn't die with the comfort of his friends. There's a very well-known Christian hymn that's been sung for years. The name of it is, I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And in that song, it tells some of the story of the cross, and it reminds Christians who sing it of this of this little detail about the event of the crucifixion when it says this, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. Jesus knows he, he, he died alone so that you would never have to be alone if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. He died alone because God wanted to be your father. He, Jesus died because God wanted to surround you with family called the church, siblings, a global family, brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. Not only a global family, a local family called a local church. So if you're a part of the church of Brook Hills, Jesus died. One of his gifts to us is each other. He brought us together. You read the story and, Daniel just referenced in, in Ephesians chapter two, we read together during uh, musical worship 
what happens in Ephesians 2, if you keep reading that text, is you find out that the cross is what brings the Christian family together. It brings together, it knocks down a dividing wall and brings together one people, one body in Christ. Jesus purchased this, this blood-bought fellowship, this kindredness. Gatherings of where the local assembly of believers, we lift up our voice in song, in praise. We make our common confession of hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about those local gatherings, right? In normal circumstances, we would be gathered here in this room. I would be looking around and you'd be here. I would have heard you singing in this room, filling up the room with our, our voices as we praise our God. That, friends, is a grace from God not to be taken lightly. And I, I trust that I'm not alone in feeling that maybe one of the left-handed gifts of this season is that you and I are going to treasure gathered worship together like we never have before. Now, I'm going to say good morning, church, at some point once we've walked through this by the grace of God. And we're going to all look at God's word together. We're going to sing ourselves deep into hope. And it's going to be utterly Glorious, but, but listen, when, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he was talking about an indestructible fellowship of believers, right? COVID-19 cannot destroy the church that Jesus is building. It cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Neither, neither could the Spanish influenza at this time last century. Neither could the bubonic plague. Nothing can destroy the church even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful story in the annals of history um, when in the 17th century, about 2,000 faithful pastors, clergymen, were kicked out of the ministry because they didn't sign the new uh, act of uniformity that was sent down by parliament, the British parliament, and they refused to sign it because that that document said the state is going to control what you do when you gather in worship. We're going to control what prayers you're allowed to pray and so on and so forth. And they said, we will not give the conscience into the hands of the government. And so all that was left in that community were state appointed, basically government appointed ministers whose public prayers had to be approved by the government. Well, what happens three years later after 1662 and 1665, a plague comes to London. And it lasts for almost a year, so 1665, 1666. And guess what happened to all those government-appointed ministers? They bolted. And guess what happened in response to that? Guess who came back? 2,000 formerly ejected clergymen come running back into the city. For what purpose? To read psalms at the bedside of infected believers. To assure them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Look. What explains stories like that? Ephesians 2 tells us the cross explains stories like that. The cross of Jesus created the fellowship of the church. Jesus, in total isolation, back against the wood, created, built something called a church. He died alone that he might give us family. Look, and we have ways this week, let me encourage us to continue to seek ways to lean into the family that Jesus created for us in the local church. God is so good. How do you know? Number two, 
Jesus died exposed that he might cover our shame. That's how you know God is good. Jesus died exposed that he might cover our shame. Many of us have had embarrassing experiences, right? I could tell you stories. Embarrassment and shame, though, are different. That's not the same animal, right? Embarrassment is often funny. Embarrassment uh, doesn't leave you feeling isolated because usually embarrassing experiences, they're funny and they're shared. It's like a universal experience. Everybody at some point is going to, you know, go to work with their shirt on inside out. That, that's just funny. You're not feeling shame over that. Uh, my brother, years ago, um, when he was in college, he went on what is now in our family a, a legendary date with, with a girl. And they went to Chili's and he ordered a club sandwich and he was in the middle of asking her a question and he hadn't quite finished chewing his food and the unthinkable happened and a, a surprisingly large piece of ham went flying out of his mouth. And my brother Paul tells the story so well. And he says, uh, time slowed down, you know? You've experienced this maybe before. And he just watched it sailing. And he said, I even watched her eyes narrowing as she watched where it was gonna land. And its eventual landing place was right in the middle of her forehead. And it ended up just being this incredible story that they laughed about, they broke up, but they laughed about it for, for years and years afterwards, staying friends. Uh, look, that's embarrassing. That's not shaming, that's, that's gonna happen to you. The, the ham might not be that big, but that kind of thing happens to people all the time, right? It's just embarrassing. Jesus, in contrast, Jesus doesn't have an embarrassing experience in John 18 and 19. You know, you see something embarrassing, you laugh. You see something shaming, your instinct is to look away. Jesus is, is slapped in public. That's, that's not embarrassing, that's shaming. 18, chapter 18, verse 22. And then you keep reading the story. They, they fashion a crown of thorns. This is intended as mockery because it was said that he was a king. So they fashion a crown of thorns and place it on his head. They wrap him in a purple robe. They have this mock worship service. You can imagine the soldiers there. They're genuflecting, they're bowing, they're singing. They're, they're pretending that he is their God. They, they, they parade him out into public in this robe and with this crown. And they sing essentially, all hail King Jesus, all hail Emmanuel, but they don't mean it. It's intended as mockery. It's shaming. They post a sign over him on the cross that says, John's gospel tells us, if you keep reading, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the irony is that though it's intended as mockery, it's true. The, the man who was wrapped in the purple robe with the crown is the king. He, if everyone only knew his true identity, right? But the mockery of the, of the purple robe, that wasn't enough because if you keep reading into chapter 19 and you get to verse 23, you find out what they do is they take that robe off and they take off everything else and they cast lots for his clothing and the bidding starts and you can almost imagine the jeering as they say, God's tunic, the last shirt God wore, Bidding starts, right? Going once, going twice. And then they hold up the greatest, most mocking article of all, the last vestige of the modesty of Jesus of Nazareth. Going once, going twice. A mid-second century writer named 
Melito said, Jesus died without a garment to keep him from view. And he said, that is why the lights of heaven turned away and the day was darkened. Melito lived so far back into the ancient church that his grandparents would have been old enough to see Jesus crucified at the cross. And he said he died with nothing on. Friends, if an accurate picture were painted of the cross, no one would buy it. Everyone would look away in shame. How does that touch us? If you've ever felt the torturous sting of shame, you have a Savior who knows. You have a Savior who knows. He knows our isolation. He knows shame. There, there is an enemy in this world, and he loves wielding the weapons of guilt and shame. To, and he wields it to keep people from finding hope in Jesus Christ who takes our shame and takes our guilt away. Some of you are very familiar with Satan's work in this particular area. He, he gets in your ear and he says, you've done things. You've done dirty things. You've done bad things. Why would God want you? And that's him leveraging the tool of shame to drive you away from Jesus Christ. Guilt keeps a lot of people from running to Jesus. Why? Because they think that when they run to Jesus, he's going to stack more guilt. They, they don't understand. Satan keeps them from understanding what Jesus actually does with guilty people. He says, I'll take that. I'll take your guilt. Satan also uses shame. Shame is different because shame, shame doesn't just say you've done dirty things. Shame says you are dirty. It's what you are. It's your identity. The dirty things that you did you did because you are dirty. The dirty things that were done to you were done to you because of what you are. That's what shame does. It's a, it's a vicious tool of the enemy. And if either of those, guilt, shame, if either of those describe your struggle, I've got really sweet news for you. It's this, Jesus died exposed that he might cover your shame that he might cover my shame. Jesus died without a robe so that he could give you a robe, so that he could cover you in a robe that covers all of your shame, all of my shame. That robe, once we're wrapped in it by faith in Jesus alone, that robe is personally monogrammed by God. It is given to you. It has your name on it and it announces, that robe announces that the one who wears this is beautiful in the eyes of God. The gospel is the world's answer to guilt and shame. God is so good. He's so good to me. Third, Jesus died condemned that we might be accepted. He died condemned that we might be accepted. You know, the whole meaning of the cross is tucked into those words in John 18, verse 11, when Jesus tells Peter, he says, put your sword away. And then he says, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The, the cup, that's, that's a metaphor. That's language that's used deep into Old Testament imagery. It has rich symbolism throughout the Old Testament. The prophets would speak of this cup that was brimming. The prophets would say it was foaming with the wrath of God. It was foaming with the undiluted justice of God poured out on human sin. And the prophets told the nations that the cup of judgment would not be set aside. 
it would be drained. It would be drained. Justice would be done. Sinners would drink the cup all the way down to the dregs. What, what becomes the surprise twist ending in the story of the gospel is that Jesus is the one who drains the cup. That Paul said, the apostle Paul said, God, the father made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why, in John 18, why is Jesus trembling in the garden? Why is he sweating drops of blood in the garden? Is he afraid of the nails? Is he afraid of the the crucifixion? Is he afraid of the flogging? Many other men in that time walked stalwart to their crucifixions. Why is Jesus more afraid than they were? He wasn't afraid of that. Jesus was trembling in the garden, falling flat on his face over and over because he's staring into the cup. The cup foaming with the wrath of a holy God against human sin. That's why his legs are wobbly in the garden of Gethsemane. Because even in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prays and heaven is silent, when he says, is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me and these my people still be saved? When heaven is silent, in answer to that question, we know Jesus has already begun to tilt the cup. He is already imbibing the curse. He is already drinking it down in our place. If you've never heard the word propitiation, it's a $3 word translated in a number of New Testament translations. That's what it means. It means God the Father came up with a way to spend his wrath on another in our place so that we might be his favored people. He spent his judgment on a perfect substitute. And what do you see when you look at the cross? You see, hour by hour, the infinite justice of God due to our sin is slamming into the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't set aside the curse. He inhaled it for us. One author and theologian said, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath bone dry, leaving not a drop for us to drink. Isaiah had said centuries before God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and said the punishment for our sins, for our transgressions was laid upon the Messiah and by his wounds we are healed. This is the heart of the good news. The cross of Jesus, friends, don't mistake it. The cross of Jesus doesn't announce God is lenient. That's not the message of the cross. The cross announces two things very powerfully. It says God is holy and it says God is merciful. Holiness and mercy kiss in the cross. It is announcing that God is holy. It says God is holy because because the cup of judgment is not set aside. And it announces God is merciful because God himself drinks it in the place of all who trust in Jesus, in the place of all who repent and believe. Have you repented and believed? Have you run to the one hope of the world, thrown your life into the arms of the only one who can save us and forgive us of our sins? Friend, do that today. You can say it even where you are in your room. You can say just simply, please save me. And what happens when 
we repent of sin and trust in Jesus. How do you know, after you've repented and believed in Jesus Christ, how do you know you'll never face a condemning judge? We know because John, the writer of this gospel, was near the cross when Jesus spoke the sweetest words history has ever known. It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The cup. The cup was empty. He had drunk the cup of the curse. Look, if, if you were in the room just now, the place just exploded with amens. Maybe people started dancing, right? If you got the point of that, there is a reaction because that's the best news the world has ever known, the world could ever hear. What was finished? Your debt to a holy God was paid in full. What was finished? Your judgment that you deserved before God against your sin, Jesus bore it. What was finished? Satan's stickiest accusations over your life of shame and guilt. Jesus silenced them. It is finished. It's great news. If you've never responded to Jesus, oh, respond to this good news. Put your hope in Christ alone. What happens the moment you believe? Here's what happens. God the Father becomes your father. God the Son becomes your advocate. God the Spirit becomes your never leaving, never distant, ever present friend. That's what happens. The triune God comes to our rescue. Friends, you need better news than what's on tonight. There's better news than what's on tonight. Friend, we've got News that can hold you up in a storm. We've got news that can put that indestructible melody back into your heart. Here it is. Jesus died alone that he might give us family. Jesus died exposed that he might cover our shame. Jesus died condemned that we might be accepted. Those truths spoken from the reality of the cross give you your song back. They place into your heart an indestructible melody. Maybe you can sing it with me right now. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me.